Good morning, Christchurch. Great to be with you uh, and great to continue this series on the life of David, a man after God's heart. Uh, A couple of points before I get started. Uh, Firstly, for the eagle-eyed viewers amongst you, you might realize that we have a a brand new camera, which is a little bit crisper in definition. So hopefully you're enjoying that at home. Uh, The second thing is when I agreed to do this, Uh, sermon. I didn't really expect it to be recorded on the hottest day of the year. So as I get increasingly sweaty during this sermon, um, hopefully you'll be able to see that in, as I say, brand spanking HD. Uh, If you also hear a whirring sound, that's the multiple number of fans that I've got on me to stop that happening. Um, So yeah, great to be with you and hope you enjoy that part of the sermon. Uh, But so leaning up, to this point uh, in the series. We've had some amazing stories of David's life. We've seen incredible things that God has done through him and the ways that God has used him. But today we're going to talk a little bit about a time when David royally mucks up, no pun intended. And uh, now we've all mucked up. None of us are perfect. My fiance Catherine, I'm sure, will be the first to admit I'm not perfect. Um, And sometimes we have stories of our lives where we're embarrassed, where we don't want to look back at them because we're ashamed of them. And one of the sort of worst times of my life in sort of a story like that takes place on a Sunday morning when I was singing in a worship band and uh, we were singing Amazing Grace. It was all really lovely. And um, I felt God say, you know, we should go into the Chris Tomlin chorus uh, that goes, I've forgotten how it goes. My chains are gone, I've been set free. That's the one. And uh, so we, I said to the worship leader, Mel, I think we should go into this, into this song. And, and she went, okay, that's fine, go for it. And I went for it and I didn't realise that it was completely the wrong key for me to sing in. It was incredibly high and my voice cracked, it fell. Um, and yeah, it was incredibly embarrassing for me. And the shame that I felt as 100 to 200 people looked at me at that point um, was huge. And I held it together until uh, we finished the set and I walked out of the room. And if I'm honest, I, I, I cried a bit after that. Um, but these shameful experiences in our lives, they build memories and they're key pivotal points in our lives. And that is the same for King David. This is a seesaw point in David's life. The writer of 1, or, one and 2 Samuel has purposefully taken time building up David as this prophet, priest, and kingly figure, this uniter of nations, protector of people, an honorer and worshiper of God. So it's all the more heartbreaking when we find out that he is flawed and lustful and murderous. And the Bible isn't shy about showing the people that God chooses are flawed, that they are sinful people. As you can see, Noah was a drunk, Abraham was too old, Jacob was a liar, Joseph was abused, Moses was a stuttering criminal. All of these people had flaws in themselves that meant that actually they weren't the people that if you looked, often God would, should choose. They had embarrassing parts, embarrassing secrets in their past, but God uses them mightily. And that is the same for King David. God uses sinful people like you and like me. But this part of David's life speaks to us of the tempting nature of the flesh, the fallibility of leaders, and how even a man after God's own heart can be tempted to rebel by the sin that so easily entangles. But it also speaks of how God reacts to sin 
And it also points to some principles that the church is called to use when it comes to sin in the body of Christ. I just want to go through this passage and unpack some of the themes that I think are highlighted by the author and then chat a bit about how that relates to us. This isn't an easy passage to grapple with. I completely appreciate this. This isn't a fridge magnet passage which you want to highlight and put on your fridge. But it is important because it shows the reality of David's life. So let's start with 2 Samuel 11 and starting at verse 1 and 2. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. I want to stop there as the first point I want to make comes in the first two verses of this passage. The Bible is this great story and the author of 1 and 2 Samuel writes in a particular way to make sure that we're aware of major points thematically. And here it is spelled out for us in the first two verses at the time of the year when kings go off to war. David doesn't. David is in the wrong place. Even in 1 and 2 Chronicles, where it doesn't even mention about David's sin, it states that David stayed in Jerusalem, as it makes a statement about where his heart and his character are at. David should never have been on the roof of his house. He should never have looked out, and he would never have seen a beautiful naked woman. He should have been out there leading the charge with his men. But David, it seems, has become complacent. Gone was the eager holy warrior, replaced with a king who is misaligned with the role and character that God has been growing in him. A king who maybe believed he was above the wars that his subjects fought on his behalf. A king who desired much and got much. And whether it was pride, gluttony, laziness, or something else that kept David from being where he was meant to be, that is all grounded in that misalignment, that he is spiritually complacent from where he should be. In 1 Samuel 8, we read of Samuel telling the Israelites the dangers of a king who takes. And this is who David has become at this point. He is one who takes. He takes a woman who wasn't his wife to bed and takes the life of an honourable man. But I think this path down the road to adultery starts decades before when he ignores the command of the Lord in Deuteronomy 17.7 that the king must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. The church leader, Phil Moore, writes, he grew complacent to the danger because of his sin, because his sin appeared to go unnoticed for many years. But he discovered all too late that he never learned to restrain his desire for women. By the time he saw his friend's beautiful wife naked and remembered that her husband was away at war, he had already built a path to disobedience. David had sowed the seeds of his sin over many years, not seeing the faults in his character, not recognizing the tracks he was making down the wrong paths. Something in David's attitude was not right. And this is seen in how he tries to emulate pagan kings from countries around. 
and why he wasn't leading the armies of the people of God as he should. Now, I often talk to young people about sin. Now, sin isn't a normal word that we use in modern day talk. You don't hear people standing around the staff canteen saying, oh, I had a sinful weekend the other week. Unless, of course, they're on Slimming World, which is a bit of a niche joke if you don't know those. Slimming World uses a, uh, a system by which you have a certain number of sins, bad foods per day. Basically, sin is things that we do that displease God. Some of these things are illegal, and those are the easier ones often to think about, but it goes a lot deeper than that. At the time that this passage is written, David and the rest of Israel live according to the Ten Commandments. Commandments you know like, uh, do not murder, obey the Sabbath, do not covet, etc. And these seem to be actions, actions that we are not to do. So when David sleeps with Bathsheba, he commits adultery and breaks the commandment. But that action begins somewhere. It begins in the heart and it begins in the mind. And when Jesus comes, he shows us that sin are those secret things in our hearts and minds when nobody is watching and that it's an individual thing before and against God. Now that can often be a bit more subversive Maybe you turn on the TV and there's a, a dodgy scene going on or a woman is walking down the streets wearing something a bit revealing. Or maybe for you it isn't sexual sin, but you love a bit of gossip or you, know, you want people to like you so much that you lie about your accomplishments. Maybe you get angry or jealous or bitter really easily. And David is a prime example of the snowball effect of sin. He looks, he keeps looking, he inquires, he sends for, he sleeps with, he lies, he covers up, and eventually he murders. The story of David shows how little sins grow, especially, in, especially when spiritually you're not following that path that God has for you. The Apostle Paul speaks of the Christian life as a race and how athletes exercise self-control, that they should discipline their body and keep it under their control. So too we should discipline ourselves against the temptations of the flesh. And that starts here and it starts here, just as it did for David and just as it does for us. And the power of that, the power of the Christian life is through accountability. Nathan later tells David that because he did it secretly, God's judgment will be public. The enemy tells us that we should keep our sins hidden and be ashamed of them. But the power of God removes that shame when we confess our sins before God and before our brothers and sisters in Christ who can support and help us through those times. We have a great pastoral team here at Christ Church. And if you want to confess something, if there's something weighing on your heart, please contact your life group leader or just a, a brother or sister in Christ who cares for you and wants to see you free of that shame. Be honest with them and do that now. Well, maybe not right now, but, you know, at some point in the not too distant future. So, yeah, that's the first thing. Sin comes at a point of complacency from the heart. And the second thing I want to talk about comes on the back of what I said about hiding sin. And that is that God sees your sin. 
It's very clear in this story that David thought he had managed to hide his indiscretion. Uriah was dead, seemingly a tragic accident. And David, the benevolent king, has taken his pregnant wife and married her. But the Lord knows what has happened. And God's heart is one of justice and love for the downtrodden. So he sends Nathan, the prophet. The thing I love about this story is that Nathan doesn't just come up to David and say, God knows, come on, man, what are you doing? He uses a parable to show David. He takes David on this journey because God knows that David is still a man after his heart. Remember at the start when I said God uses sinful people like you and me? He didn't stop loving David. He didn't remove him from his plans. But he brings conviction to David's heart by showing him his sin, getting David to bring his own judgment on the situation. So Nathan tells this story of a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man has many sheep. And the poor man has one lamb. And the rich man takes the poor man's one lamb. And Nathan brings it to David as the, uh, the judicial head of the nation. And David says, that man should be punished. That man should have his life taken from him. And the poor man should be repaid fourfold. And then this hammer blow comes from Nathan. This man is you. When the heart and the spirit of God comes alongside our sin, we become aware of the position of our hearts, just as David did. That we have separated ourselves from God's moral justice. And it's out of that place that David writes Psalm 51, a lament of his sin and place and asking for mercy from God. And that's my story. And the story of every Christian here today, God has revealed himself to you, showed you how far away you were from him, and you realized you needed mercy. And if you're watching us this morning and maybe you don't know God, you've never maybe even heard of Jesus before today, but maybe as I've been saying, there's something building up inside you. Maybe you realize that you're not um, 100% perfect. And if you were to stand before a righteous, holy God, maybe you wouldn't stand up to that moral um, benchmark. I want to tell you, you don't have to. Because someone already did. 2,000 years ago, God came down and lived on earth as a man, lived a perfect life, and then died a perfect death on a cross, taking the punishment for all of the wrongdoing, all of the, the bad things that we have done, all that sin. And he says, have my righteousness. I've paid for it. I've paid for your sin. Not only does that happen, but God then adopts us into his family. So if that's you this morning, you can know God. And you can exchange your, your sin for his righteousness because he has paid for it already. If you're at a point of lament at your own sin, that's a great place to be. God loves you. He wants to meet with you. Please contact uh, the church. We'd love to talk to you more 
about what it means to be a Christian, about what it means to be part of God's family. And this is where, that's the point, the point I've just said about the place where you might be in. That's the place where David, the king of Israel, the king of promise in chapter 12, that's where we find him. And there is judgment from God in that situation because of David's sin. I'm not going to go into that this morning as I don't have time to do it justice. Um, But God is a just God. And if you're grappling with this passage, don't worry, so am I. Not everything in this book makes sense to me. Not everything in this book sits easy with me. But I know the character of God. I see the character of God through these pages. I know that he's loving and just. And if anyone has a right over life, it's him. But back to David, because God's actions to David are not ones of resentment or condemnation. He doesn't cast David out as he does Saul. He does say that David's children and house are going to bring war and conflict. But that isn't something that God brings from nowhere. That links back to David having multiple wives, multiple children, multiple heirs. It's a judgment of his own doing, like I said earlier. But God draws David back to himself. And we see that through David's actions of prayer and fasting and worship. Because that's the biggest heartbreaking truth about sin when you're a Christian. Sin is not condemnation from God. It's not you're out of the family. In his death and his resurrection, Christ has given us access to God and our acceptance of that access gives us fullness in him, in our adoption as sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. But we also realize that we only see in part what we shall one day see in full. And even though in the spiritual realm we have all of those things, sin hinders us from that fullness that we see in this current age. Whether that be in our mindset, in our closedness towards God's love. God says, you're forgiven. Come to me. You can set the past down at the cross. It's us who say, but. And maybe you've been saying that your whole Christian life letting your sin get in the way. Let me tell you, God knows how sinful you are better than you do. God knows that we are sinful, fallen people. But he also doesn't want us to stay that way. Because through the cross, Christ has died and taken away that judgment that was rightfully ours. And through the Holy Spirit, we are sanctified day after day as we choose to live in the power we have been given. And that's God's plan, right from Genesis 3. Now, I love the Bible for many reasons, but here's just a couple to close from this story. David was a man after God's own heart. He is also fallen and sinful, just as we were before Christ saved us. One of the main reasons why the Bible speaks of David as it does is it shows us that sin is dangerous and leads to pain, heartache and suffering but also that alongside humility, obedience, purity, and passion for his name, God prizes heartfelt repentance, brought in short account and relationship to him. Secondly, is how the failings of David only go to show the majesty of Christ. 
The Bible is this great unfolding narrative brought together by the Spirit of God and the pens of man, uses human fallibility to point towards the goodness of God. We've said before that David is a type of Christ. He points towards Christ. David bears the scars of his own sin, as we'll find out over the next coming weeks, whereas Christ bears the scars of all other people's sins. David is an illusion of what Christ will be, but where David is still fallen and sinful and ultimately can't even save himself, Christ is holy and the true and complete picture. David is is the king who, through his laziness, didn't fulfill his duty and through pride claims a victory that wasn't his to claim, as we read later. Christ is the king who fulfills the heart of God in laying down his life for his people and in humility gives us and credits us with the victory that he alone has won. Going back to my shameful story of singing, I had reconciliation of my hurt and my shame through the worship leader that I was speaking about, Mel. We chatted about it afterwards and I was brought to a place of reconciliation. I remember she gave me a big hug and she said, you were so brave going for that. Even though it was embarrassing, you stepped out and God loves you. And as a church, it's our role to come alongside those who are struggling with shame and bring God's love and sometimes conviction so that we can all walk in the freedom that God has for us. Let me just pray for us. Yeah, Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are a loving God. Lord, thank you. You know us deeper than we can even know ourselves. Lord, you know our failings. You know our sin and our shame. But Lord, thank you that you didn't leave us in that place. You sent your son, Jesus, to die for us, to take all of that sin and that shame, to break the power of death. And Holy Spirit, thank you that you help us every day to live in a way that is more Christ-like. Lord, thank you for this time we've had together and bless your people through this week. Amen.